Hello everybody, welcome to another episode of Over The Bridge Podcast. Uh, today is Sunday, Sunday afternoon. I'm kind of kind of in that zone where I'm thinking about work and what have you and just like dreading because I've got a mad week ahead, but it's nice to have the, the man in back with us. Um, Patrick, how's it going? Yeah, man, I'm good. I'm good. I'm doing quite nicely this weekend because I've been off this week and I'm off next week. So I've just been... Um, oh, nice, man. Re- yeah, I've just been oh. recuperating. Um, so you can hear my voice. I, I sound a bit more relaxed. You've got that, um, got that bass on. You're, so you're, you're, you're less of a baritone. Yeah, man, I'm, 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 I'm good. Um, yeah. It's been a difficult start to the year, just um, for various different reasons. Um, work has been really intense. So it's just been nice to just have a, a little break. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm doing good this this Sunday afternoon. How about you guys? Yeah, I'm all right. Just uh, still in the thick of uh, earnings, so it's uh, it's tough, man. It's tough, um, and not for any. I think because of COVID as well. Normally, you just kind of do it. You know, you listen to the company's report, you talk to management, you talk to other people, you make your decisions your investment decisions is fine. I think this time because of COVID and kind of a, there's an element of separation, it becomes a lot tougher. Do you know what I mean? So you work sure. in the house all mm. the time and it's like 23 hour lockdown and you find yourself just doing work, stupid times, which is no change yeah. from normal, but it's like, what else is there to do? You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. 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 I think yeah. also the other thing, um, it's like communicating with people when you, when you're not able to do it in person, it's a lot more labored, like things take yep. a lot longer. Yep. Like mm. we'll have like a an issue or something that needs to be clarified. And I just find it takes so much longer now to deal with the, the problem because you just can't quickly ask somebody, like just nip over to their desk or, do you know yeah. what I mean? I, yeah. And even, even it's, like, it's made me... there's, there's sometimes just even a complete uh, miscommunication sometimes. Cause oh yeah, big time. Mm, big time. I'll be trying to like get a task done and I'll be asking like one of my colleagues and there's so many back and forths that are needed in via text when you're like talking on yeah. Slack compared to like if you're able to see yeah, facial yeah, yeah. and like I guess that's how we assume as well like I can't remember what the saying is but like x percent of communication is verbal about 50 yeah, yeah 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 so 50 mm. is you need to be in front of a person to mm. communicate with them and mm. uh yeah that makes it that makes it um yeah, I think it's definitely made things tougher, actually. And also the, the inability to properly collaborate with others as well. You know, usually I'll be, let's say I'm looking at a company, usually I'll run the idea back and forth with someone to say, what do you think about it? Does it make sense? Da, 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 da. And you get a good sense check. And now it's like, you still do it because it's the it's like fiduciary responsibility, of course. But you, um, yeah, it's definitely harder, you know. It's definitely more difficult, but yeah. it's all right. It's all right. Ernie's is almost done and... Sun's out, weather's nice. It's been really good. We're getting that spring weather over here. Uh, it's, it's good. It's good. Um, yeah, we're starting to get a bit of yeah, um, some warm weather a little bit now because I think the last time we were on, uh, the last time we recorded, there was like it was snowing at that point. Snow, but, um, huh? Mm. Yeah, we had a few a few days of snow and it was like super cold. But now we've kind of got the sun out at the moment as well, so it's nice. Spirits are Quaker, feeling what, a bit what, more lifted. What about you, Quaker? How 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 are you doing? How was your week? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I've had a mad few weeks just with work um, because we're launching quite a few things. So I've been working on a web platform 
um, basically like an education platform for entrepreneurs that want to create tech startups. So I've been like crowdsourcing um, teachers from all through the startup ecosystem, investors, uh, investment managers, other founders, etc., getting them to record lessons basically and create this library of um, content so that people that are like have an idea but don't know where to go with things um, have a resource that they can just tap into whenever. Um, so like it was a lot of kind of learning to build. You know, I don't have a coding background, any technical background, but um, just going through the process of doing that, which has been fun as well, to be honest, because I think I'm, I've picked up quite a few new skills, but um, we're launching that on Tuesday. Um, and then also we have like our impact report coming out and loads of different things. So it's been quite busy. Um, I'm looking forward to hopefully taking a little bit of time off, maybe week after next. Um but yeah, otherwise, good. Just, yeah, t- time with the wife and all that, you know. Um, but yeah, I don't want to kind of keep uh, our guest too long. He's been patiently waiting in the background. Very um, special guest. A very, very, yeah. very, very, very special, special guest. guest. Um, a new one for the podca- podcast in general, because, um, yeah, as I was saying to you guys earlier and, and, and to my dad as well, whoop, there we go, the secret's out. So... <laughs> so <laughs> So our guest today is none other than my father. <laughs> um, I I know him as Daps. Uh, uh, for other people, Uncle Daps. I'll let him kind of introduce himself shortly anyway. But um, yeah, the reason why I wanted to get my dad on is because we tend to have a lot of conversations pertaining to our experiences, being black, being mixed race, being in the UK, you know, obviously our time studying at Cambridge and loads of other issues that we touch on and we tend to do it from our own experiences um, and speaking to people within our own generation. And I think sometimes we're lacking the perspective and voice of, you know, the slightly older generation um, who, you know, have certain experiences that they've been through um, that, you know, some that are similar to ours, some that are different. And it's just good to get that voice and, and have, you know, essentially bridge that, that gap that tends to exist between us. So, um, yeah, glad to have my dad on the, the podcast today. Uh, dad, please introduce yourself. Yeah, thank you. Uh, well, uh, where should I start from? Uh, my name is Gabriel Dapa. Um, Gabriel being a Catholic uh, who, uh, when I was growing up, wanted to become a Catholic priest. So <laughs> I was about as um, you know, and give me the name Gabriel. Of course, um, the desire to become a Catholic priest never uh, materialized, and uh, somehow, uh, sometimes I, you know, I do have some regrets about that. Really good priest. Um, everybody calls me Daps, um, which somehow is the short for Dapper, but it's not every Dapper that is called Daps. So it's kind of very exclusive uh, to a few, you know, Dappers. Um, well, my. my, my <laughs> My, my kids, my kids call me uh, Daps, and uh, somehow I think uh, my wife um, likes it when they call me um, Daps. It shows how close you are with them. So I sort of found said, "Ah, oh, yeah, it's good." But sometimes I, I miss being called um, Daps, um, Daddy or Daps or uh, Daddy or you know uh, Dad or something. <laughs> yeah, um, I grew up in Ghana. I came to the UK in 1990. 
uh, and lived here um, through the 90s and the, uh, the new millennium. Um, I retired in 2017 and went back home. It's where I've been, you know, all this time. So uh, I came this time around um, just to ensure certain things are done. So I mean, back in the UK, but uh, at the moment I landed, I was sort of um, um, waiting to have my exit back to Ghana because <laughs> I, I think uh, the UK, it really is not uh, a place for me now, but yeah. So I had all my, you know, all my children in the UK and um, I was hoping that um, when I was going back home, I would take them along, but unfortunately it didn't happen. So uh, yeah, here, we'll, 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 get, we'll get into that. We'll get into that. Don't worry about it, mate. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, that, that, that's that. <laughs> <laughs> cool. No, thanks. Thanks for joining us. And um, like when we speak to guests, for me anyway, I like to kind of go as early as possible, kind of like talking about their upbringing, where they grew up, that kind of thing. Because I feel like that really gives a good understanding of where someone's coming from and puts, you know, some of their views in perspective. Um, and obviously I know, you know, some stories and, and different things about your upbringing, but I still feel like myself that there's a lot of things about you that I don't really know. So I'm sure during the course of this <laughs> uh, discussion, I'll be learning new things as well. Um, but yeah, like how was your upbringing in, in Ghana? Like, um, yeah, let's just keep it broad. Like how, how was it like growing up in Ghana in, in the fifties and sixties? Well, um, growing up in Ghana was kind of fun for me. Um, I, I come from a pretty, um, large family. Uh, actually, um, I always say that we are the last of the, my dad's production line because my dad had, you know, um, other children or married before my mom. Um, so my mom uh, happened to be the um, last, you know, wife of my dad and um, they had six children. I'm the second born, uh, come after my sister. And then after me came um, two, two boys and then we had um, two other girls who are the last. Um, we're quite a, you know, pretty uh, close family. And uh, by Ghanaian standards, I'll say that my, my dad was um, well off. So I never uh, wanted for anything. And I thought that I was quite privileged. And, um, you know, enjoyed having uh, good friends around. And <clears throat> sorry, um, did not live in, the, uh, in our own region. So, I mean, I'm a Santi, but I, I grew up um, in the Brown Hafu region. But then when I left the sixth form, um, we came back to Kumase, which is the capital of the Ashanti region. And then, you know, I, but I had my secondary education and university education all in, you know, in Kumase. So uh, I'll say that um, I didn't know anything different. And I, I, I thought that I was a very lucky guy because I had, you know, a warm family. My, my dad was good to us. My mom was uh, really good. She was the one who would pamper us. And, give us the clothing that we needed. My dad, you know, took the serious part of things and, you know, ensured that education uh, was taken very seriously and all that. So I've, I suppose that both complemented one another in shaping us. And throughout that period, we had real good socialization and um, my dad would introduce us to a whole lot of things, you know, um, how life is and, you know, um, maybe some of the uh, traps along the way and how to overcome them. So he guided us uh, in that sense. And my mom also would do a bit of the 
other staff, ensuring that you were well-fed, well-clothed, and I had, you know, good friends. So I was a happy boy, and I grew up being very happy and thinking that, you know, um, Ghana was the best place to be. And um, <laughs> so I do, I do not really have any regrets, and I can't really talk about anything about my upbringing, which I felt uh, wasn't great. And I kind of probably didn't appreciate, you know, some uh, aspects of my upbringing and maybe life at home. But um, after growing up, I became much aware about what the values that uh, my parents tried to inculcate into us and the sort of uh, education they also wanted us to have because they felt that in Ghana at the time, you know, your, uh, the level of education will mark the, or measure the success you will be, <clears throat> sorry, you'll be able to achieve. So in that sense, I, I feel that they did a job uh, the best way possible. And um, they were happy with us also. And um, I believe um, they saw me as a model, model son because I was quite, you know, a quiet person and also uh, not a troublemaker. I never gave them any reason to uh, have any issues in terms of getting worried about me, where I was and all that. So, yeah, it was kind of normal upbringing, I'll say. Mm. Yeah, it sounds pretty, pretty traditional as far as like, I guess, the way you described it, the gender roles that were played, mom, like provider, not provider, excuse me, uh, kind of like, well, providing a sense of more the care and the, uh, the, as you put it, the pampering and stuff. And then your dad being this kind of strict, serious guy. And I think that's one of the, when I think for me, at least when we think about African parents, um, you know, that's the way people tend to see it. It's like, you got the strict dads, you know, that's that's kind of like uh, ensuring that you're not going off the rails or trying to be very uh, proactive and making sure that you take education seriously and that kind of thing. So it's interesting to hear that that seems to be like something that's been inherited <laughs> and been passed passed down as well. Um, yeah, cool. Sorry, right. so that's, that's interesting. So, I mean, one thing that I picked up on just from you saying um, you thought Ghana was the best place in the world and, and everything. Um, you know, I guess some of the choices you made quite early on is worth exploring why, despite you, you thinking Ghana was the best place in the world, you ended up kind of like growing abroad. Um, and yeah, what was kind of like your thinking at that point of like leaving Ghana for the first time? Yeah, um, quite apart from the fact that we all appreciate and also think that, you know, Ghana is the best place. Um, almost my generation, and in fact, the, even the current generation, there's always the desire for people to, you know, have an experience of life abroad. So I think it's in our DNA, because somehow we always um, think that, um, you know, we want to travel abroad either to work, make a living, have education, or for different other reasons. And the desire always is to come abroad, get a bit of experience or whatever you can get, and then come back home and settle. Uh, for me, I never wanted to travel abroad uh, for any other reason than for education. And I, I felt that um, after my university education in Ghana, I thought having uh, further studies abroad would enhance my prospects and opportunities and also would expose me uh, more to 
um, you know, the advance as we saw it, um, educational system, you know, abroad in the West, especially. So that was my desire to uh, come abroad. It wasn't uh, my desire to come and live and work abroad. Uh, it was only for education. And um, maybe in the course of our chat, uh, you know, you may get to know reasons why probably that part of it wasn't fulfilled. That is to say why I ended up, you know, living abroad and working here and having my family here. Mm. But uh, I wanted to come abroad purposely for education. Mm-hmm. And I remember um, when I finished my, um, I completed my first degree, and then I was uh, assigned as a um, assistant research fellow. I did my national service at the university that I attended. And then after two years national service, I worked as a researcher for three years. And during that time, and trying to pursue further education um, abroad, I, I got admitted to University of Cambridge. And um, uh, I think the, 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 the college was, is it Clare College or something? I've forgotten all this. Year, oh, I think wow. it's Clare College. Yeah, 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 Clare. Yeah, Clare College. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I was, you know, coming to do MPhil in land economy. But um, the award, the scholarship that we're looking for, which is the ODA, Overseas Development Agency Scholarship, did not cover MPhil in land economy. Um, so um, the the scholarship became you know uh, became a problem, and uh, I think um, the college was trying to offer some awards here and there. They put things together, but before uh, they completed with that, I had admission to uh, I'll say the Oxbridge of Israel, which is the um, Technion Israel Institute of Technology in Haifa, uh, to do a master's program in urban and regional planning. So uh, when I got admission, which came with a full package, full scholarship, a ticket and everything. So I decided um, to go um, to Israel where I studied for three years for my master's in urban and regional planning. Wow. And whilst I was, I was there, you know, one of my colleagues who also had uh, admission to Cambridge at the time, fortunately he was coming to do development studies, uh, you know, uh, postgraduate in uh, development studies. And that was covered by ODA. So he came and one day met, I think, uh, one of the tutors or head of department um, at Clare College. And he knew the guy to have come from Ghana. So he asked about me and he told me that, oh yeah, we're in the same office at the university in Ghana and that I was studying in, um, you know, in Israel now because my scholarship was delayed. So in fact, actually he told me that and I said, oh, okay. So they were still thinking about me. So <laughs> if that had materialized probably, um, Probably I may be doing the over the bridge before you guys start. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy, man. And just the fact that your genius brains clearly run in the family. Like, uncle, man, like, do you know what I mean? Uncle, like, brains run in the family. Like, yeah, yeah, Kweku, yeah. Did, did, did your choice of, of going to Cambridge, did it have anything to do with the fact that your dad, you know, was set to go to Cambridge, but it didn't quite, you know, work out that way? It, that's so interesting because, um, you know, I've, I've heard this, this um, story a couple of times, but I, don't, I actually think I learned about it after already attending. And no, honestly, I had no influence whatsoever. Um, and I guess for me, like, um, and my dad can probably attest to it, like I was a bit reluctant to apply in the first place mm. um, for various reasons, which I think probably like even 
there's some distinction between, I guess, how someone that grew up from abroad thinking, you know, I want to kind of pursue the best education and someone that kind of grew up here and our exposure to opportunities and how we're seen might have impacted mm. the way that I thought, you know, Cambridge would be for, for someone like myself. Um, but now, funnily enough, like that, I, I mean, yeah, no, it's, it's funny, it's that like very, you know, quite a full circle moment in a lot of ways and it adds more depth to the over the bridge title it's so funny like every time like we have an episode <laughs> there's like more reasons why over the bridge was such a fitting name but yeah yeah, yeah. that's really cool yeah and cool. uncle daps how, how was it for you when um when quaker did get um an offer from um from cambridge was it did it kind of feel like a sort of like as as Quaker mentioned that it's like it's come full circle but also it's like something that's some like sort of destiny or something that's been sort of fulfilled but by your son was it like that or was it just like oh I'm, I'm glad that he got in I knew that he could do it kind of thing yeah I mean it was it was my dream and as um, Quaker was saying that he, he never really uh, considered maybe Oxford Cambridge and all that and obviously he knows that that was my dream mm. uh, I think uh, one thing that probably I can say I, I did well as a dad was to um, take keen interest in my kids' education. Yeah. And um, I, I was, you know, kind of very ambitious in that regard. Mm. And I also felt that uh, being an immigrant um, in the UK, um, the prospects that my kids will have is to have a very good education mm. and to be able to break, you know, the glass um, somehow. Mm. And um, I, I believe that I, a lot of my focus was, you know, on that right from even when they were in primary school. And I spent yeah. a lot of time, you know, um, with their schoolwork and all that. And uh, I guess I tried to do what my dad tried, you know, to do for me in terms of yeah. pursuing um, good education. And I mm. felt that even in the UK, it was even much more important than maybe it was in Ghana, <clears throat> because we believe that um, when you are an immigrant and you don't have any landed property, you don't have um, grandparents, you don't have any connection, you don't have anything, uh, probably as far as our family is concerned, uh, I'm the first person. So, yeah. you know, be beyond me is in Ghana, so it's not mm. in here. Yeah. So I didn't have anything to offer um, the children other than um, maybe the education they'll be able to have. Yeah. And they started with trying to get them into grammar school and Kay knows how much effort, you know, <laughs> and with his cooperation that went into it. And I guess uh, they might have hated me at some point because uh, maybe uh, <laughs> I didn't. Yeah, I guess looking back, I, I believe that is how they felt. But probably maybe uh, somehow they may be thankful, even though they don't often say it uh, <laughs> for the effort. I, I would go. I would go far enough to say, "Yeah." <laughs> <laughs> you know, when, when you're kids, obviously, laughter, quite no, no, do you know what is? Yeah. Do you know what is like? Obviously, when you're a kid, you want to be out playing and doing whatever. But then, you know, my dad yeah. is obviously quite quite strict with us, like doing work outside of like school. Because I'd yeah, say, not, yeah. not even just for myself, my brother's like my brother was very smart. He was. Um, he he did well at school and you know they they let us do certain things where it'd be like um extracurricular not extracurricular but there's those like um what do you call it again gifted and talented like classes yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Kind of yeah, but, yeah um i think our 
if it wasn't for my dad kind of putting in that work, I probably would have got complacent and just sure, coasted yeah. through through like primary school and that kind of thing. So yeah, yeah, because yeah, I found it, you know, it wasn't that challenging. So yeah. I remember at times even doing whilst my dad was helping my brother prep for like grammar school tests and stuff, I'd be doing work with him. And um, yeah. I'd be like, sometimes I'd be getting the answers right whilst my brother was struggling. And like, <laughs> I'm sure that would cause some tension because my dad would be like, oh, um, he'd, he'd be trying to get my brother to get an answer right with maths or whatever, and he'd be struggling. And then he'll tell me to come and do it and I'll get it right. And then we'll just, <laughs> do you know what I mean? So, <laughs> that probably caused a bit of tension between me and, and Didi more so than <laughs> me and you. But, um, yeah. yeah. Um, definitely when it comes yeah, to Yeah, I mean, I, I thought, I thought, I mean, I thought that was because somehow when I look back, I, I still believe that, you know, when we came to the UK, uh, we started off on the wrong side of the city. Um, I mean, uh, my very good friend lived at Camberwell at the time and he was, um, I came, you know, and stayed with him for a few months before uh, we moved, um, you know, on from Camberwell to Peckham. And as I began, uh, you know, I started knowing uh, the geography of UK, the, you know, um, uh, sort of the different areas and how people view them and some of these, the attributes. I felt that, okay, if I was in Ghana, uh, my place would be in maybe a middle class area or an area that I think that, you know, educated people, you know, that kind of class thing. And well, the British had, train us that way to believe in this class system. Mm. So that's what I thought. But then when I realized that, okay, I was in Peckham and I, I thought that, okay, this is um, a working class area, sort of. So I felt that, and I saw myself as, you know, yeah, a young graduate and I'm thinking that, no, this is not my place. But then I, I couldn't afford any other place. So that was where, you know, fate mm. had, you know, brought me. Mm. So quickly I, I intended to move the family mm. out of the place because um, the neighbors, some of the neighbors that I had a chat with, I, I thought that their views were very different. The ambitions were very different. Mm. And I didn't want the kids to grow up having those um, ambitions and thinking like, okay, after 16 or so, look for a work and all that. I thought, I know, ultimately you have to follow, you know, the path of education. And for me, yeah. um, not having a university education was, it's a non-starter really. Uh, it wasn't mm. part of... Um, you know, my armory. So I thought that in the minimum that should happen. Mm, mm. I mean, I know some of my friends were thinking that, why would you send kids to uh, a grammar school in, uh, in Wellington whilst you're living in Peckham? The travel time, having to go, uh, go by train and, you know, all that. And I, I said they had to wake up quite early. But I felt that, you know, for to in order to achieve any, anything good, you have to put in the sacrifice. And I, I know maybe the kids wouldn't understand it, you know, that much at that time, but I felt that, yeah, that is what it is and it should be because when they are more matured, they will understand the sacrifice that they had to put in into, you know, all that. So in a way, uh, maybe we didn't have room for any other thing other than um, maybe, uh, maybe a street jacket. I regret in some, in some, in some aspects and thinking that uh, maybe uh, sometimes kids should also be able to find their way in some other ways. And it's not only maybe going through the straight jacket education after university and all that. 
But at the same time, I didn't know any better. And I thought, um, you know, it's almost like something in Ghana, that is what it is. In Nigeria, that is what it is. You know, you don't end up your education without going through, uh, go through university. Mm. So that is what I knew. And that was what I thought I should impart to my children. And that is what I did. And in the end, if it ended well, that's good. Uh, I achieved what I intended. If it doesn't, well, at the same time, I think I, I did my best. So that, that's what it is. And uh, really, um, yeah, I, I, I think that, and I encourage them also to, at least in the minimum, ensure that their kids will have, um, you know, very good education. It's something that no one can take away from you. Sure. Because, you know, once you get education, it's yours. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you use it, you use it anyhow you want it. Mm-hmm. I was gonna say um, now that we're sort of getting to the age of becoming parents ourselves, like a few. I, I'm not a parent yet, but you know our, our friends are are getting married, having kids, and all that stuff. You sort of start to think about this sort of next stage in your life, and it's like the th- the the thought of parenthood and sort of having to kind of learn as you go is is quite sort of it's daunting but then to have to do that in a new country as well like it just adds an, an extra level of 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 difficulty of challenge so it's yeah it's you know i guess you can only really do your best and yeah i, I mean from where i'm sitting it looks like you've done a really good job with your with your yeah, kids but, oh, um, thank you <laughs> but uncle can to... we i was gonna say uncle can we just like go back a bit because you spoke about your um your or you just got to the point where you're speaking about doing the masters in Israel. Hmm. And so I'm just interested in one, how was that? And how was living in Israel? And then after that, can we just talk about, well, I guess what were the steps after um, going from Israel to eventually coming to the UK? What was that kind of journey of maybe, Hmm. you know, five, 10 years? Like if you could just, you know, go through that, that would be great. Okay. Yeah. um, I mean, the journey to Israel started in um, 1987. Uh, I left Ghana uh, July 19th, um, 1987 um, to Israel. And somehow it was almost like, why Israel? You know, the troubles in the Middle East and all that. But somehow uh, some of my seniors in uh, in secondary school, and I must say that I, I went to, you know, one of the poshest um, secondary schools in Ghana and I always told Kay and the children uh, and um, DD that they, if they were in Ghana, they wouldn't have gone to any other secondary school other than, you know, my school. Uh, I'm very proud of um, that school. And um, some of my seniors had studied um, at the Technion Israel Institute of Technology. So they sort of um, told me about that institute. So I put in the application, got admission and everything. So um, July 19th, I left Ghana and went to Israel. Um, I must say that my three years in Israel was very enjoyable. In fact, I did enjoy um, Israel very well, apart from the initial sort of, um, you know, culture shock. Some of, I mean, language especially was uh, was a barrier. And to start uh, an MSc program, um, where, you know, language was, you know, really difficult, the Hebrew language. Uh, we had to do um, two months introductory to Hebrew, uh, but that was not, you know, anything to help you. Fortunately, um, in Israel for the master's program, 
you didn't need to um, study in Hebrew because uh, most of the programs were sort of uh, organized in a way that there was a lot of directed reading. They had the resources, the resources were there. And in fact, foreign students uh, had upper hand in terms of most of the literature, you know, would be in, uh, would be in English. So we're able to utilize, you know, uh, the faculty libraries and things like that. And um, fortunately, there was a guy who was in our study group, uh, an Israeli guy who studied in um, in, in, the, in the U.S. So uh, he had also uh, like had exposure, you know, with black people. So in fact, he was quite happy to be in our group. And in a group of three, with two um, black guys, one was my mate in secondary school anyway. So uh, he almost helped us um, throughout that. Sometimes in uh, because we're doing planning, we have to do four studio work. And the studio always was more like in a group setting. So he was always in our group. And um, if we had to do any research, uh, he would sort of help us um, translate, um, you know, literature and um, discussions and things like that, you know, for us. Um, some people were curious about um, African students studying, you know, uh, in the Technion. I remember when I was on flight um, from Switzerland, I, I did overnight stay in you know, Switzerland. So the following day on, on route to Israel, um, the guy that was sitting next to me, an Israeli, you know, asked me um, what I was going to do in Israel. So I informed him that I was going to do my master's. And he said, um, you know, um, what institute? And I said, uh, I was going to study at the Technion. The guy almost uh, went through the roof. He screamed, Technion? And I said, what? <laughs> and then he said that he tried. He tried and tried and tried, but he never got admission to the Technion. It's like the Technion is a cream. So he was wondering how I managed a black guy, I managed to get a Technion. So when I told him that, well, you know, I put in the application, you know, the father even said, that even they pay for my ticket. And I think the guy started changing, the color started changing, you know, you know, as, as if you know, you know, the guy was red or pink, whatever the color was. And for that point, he wasn't too much involved in the communication, he wasn't chatting that much. So I thought, I didn't know what was going through these guys, you know, brains. Anyway. Uh, my stay in Israel was a good one. Uh, the first few months was terrible because uh, I wasn't there on my own because I had my, some seniors there, some African guys there. Uh, but then um, my wife was in Ghana. So uh, 11 months after I'd been in Israel, she, 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 she joined me. And um, you know things were kind of okay. But even that, I live on campus and she, she lived in Tel Aviv because she took up some job in Tel Aviv. And um, Haifa to Tel Aviv is about one hour by coach. So uh, we often um, you know, saw ourselves like Friday, Friday evening to Sunday evening when she would return you know, uh, to Tel Aviv. And uh, I had a lot of friendly, um, you know, I met a lot of friendly guys, some very curious who wanted to know more about um, you know, Africa and all that. And also I lived, I shared an apartment with a Palestinian guy who was really, really, really good. A funny guy who would take me to um, 
the Palestinian village, met his family, the family would cook for us and, and all that. But he was very naive, I must say. You know, he would ask questions about Africa and, you know, about people living on trees and, you know, oh my God. Um, you know, things like that. So the, 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 the usual monkey story came up <laughs> and I, I said, oh, yeah, you don't know. I said, oh, I had my own monkey, you know, and <laughs> even when I was going to school, the monkey would carry my school bag for me. <laughs> and I was like, really? I said, oh, yes, really. And I said, uh, you know, in the classroom, the monkey will be, you know, sitting just close by and then, you know, just do a uh, base for me. So it was like, a, and you said, really? And I said, oh, yeah, really? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> you know, he, belie- he believed all that. Uh, but he was, he, was a, he was a nice guy. And, but because um, we also had another guy, a, a Jewish guy in an apartment. So I was torn between you know, the Palestinian guy mm. and the, you know, the Israel, I mean, the Jewish guy because of the politics, you know, the yeah. area, uh, each one trying to sort of um, influence, you know, my thinking mm. and my thoughts. And, you know, um, Israelis, I say, Jews are very sensitive to, you know, people's um, opinion about them mm. and always want to get people to understand you know, that they are not the problem, you know, they are the victims and all that. So, but I had to play my role very well and be careful not to, mm. you know, uh, trip in a way not to pro-Palestinian or pro, um, you know, Jews and all that. I was there for a reason mm. and I didn't want to be involved in their politics. Mm. Even though I, I, I came um, back from the place having a whole different views about the plight of the Palestinians, which I, up to date, I really sympathize, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, with, their, with their position because I saw some of the difficulties um, that they, 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 they had to go through. Mm-hmm. Uh, Palestinians with PhD could not find work, but just be, you know, taxi drivers and all that. Mm-hmm. So, but all you know, the three years um, there was not, uh, was quite enjoyable. And in fact, I will say that I did enjoy Israel more than I did enjoy, you know, the UK. Mm. Um, I did not experience issues of, you know, racism, uh, um, you know, to any meaningful extent. Uh, there was a time I was going to town to uh, undertake some research for a paper I was writing. Yep. And at the bus stop, um, you know, I put my bag, you know, on the seat it was quite early and there was nobody there. So I was just, you know, pacing, you know, there waiting for the bus to come. Then a lady um, came around to the bus stop, saw me there and asked if the bag was mine. And I said, yes, it was mine. I mean, they don't take security, you know, for granted. So um, we started talking. So she asked me what I was doing in Israel. And I said, oh, I'm a student, you know, at a Technion. And um, she asked what I was studying. I told her, and I said I was doing a master's degree. Then she asked me um, where I had my first degree. And I said I had my first degree in Ghana. And um, after a while, then she asked, uh, oh, so you attended university in Ghana? And I said, yes. And she asked, were you taught by white people? And that really got me. Mm. I was really furious and i said well to your disappointment uh throughout my university education i was never taught by any white person all the uh the professors are Ghanaians, 
Um, so um, mm. uh, there wasn't any white guy in my faculty, so I wasn't taught by. Um, I think I let her off so easily. If my exposure to you know the outside world had been as it is now, probably my response to her would have been a bit different. But mm. because that was my first time abroad and you know experiencing something of the sort, I, I think that uh, the, the question she asked me was so cheeky and so racist and so abominable mm. that you know I don't see how she, she I mean she could have asked you know such a silly question anyway. So you know I didn't have any bad experiences there in, you know in terms of racism. If people had it, it was more subtle maybe. Um, you know, again, if you don't understand the language, you don't understand what people are saying about you. Mm-hmm. So in effect, it didn't really have any mm-hmm. um, negative, you know, effect on me. But in the in the academic space, was it, would you say it was quite sort of diplomatic? It was quite more of a meritocracy than than you being judged by your, your the color of your skin? Oh, yes, yes. I mean, the professors, uh, most of the professors um, studied in the, in the U.S., and some had immigrated from the U.S., you know, um, Israeli Jews from the U.S., from the U.K., right. South, Af- South Africa, and most other places. So as we see, you know, Israel's okay, it's a stepping stone. They also saw the U.S. especially as the mm. cream. So most of the guys would, you know, want to go and study in the U.S. Mm. And they also took some positions there. So, yeah, uh, they had that exposure. And in fact... Uh, a number of times, some of our professors would say in class that, you know, uh, my friend who's Andy and myself were, you know, the best students, you know, in the class in, m- in most areas. And also that our attitude to work in terms of um, the uh, referencing books, reading books and all that, because uh, we had shortcoming in understanding some of the stuff that I said in class, we had to make up by reading almost all the reference books and literature around. So, I mean, they were quite um, complimentary of us um, in class. And also, I mean, most often uh, we talked in most of the subjects. So I think yeah, meritocracy uh, was really um, in operation there and they recognized that. We did not feel that we had to struggle, you know, and the students, some of the guys also recognize um, in fact, somebody mentioned that, oh, we must be the cream of the cream from Ghana. So they were more or less, they, what they were trying to imply was that maybe we are way over the average, not, you know, the average Ghanaian, you know, to find us in that level, which I think is stupid anyway, for mm. them to think that. <laughs> and also, uh, <clears throat> I was um, in a group with uh, one Israeli guy, one Canadian lady, and, you know, uh, we did uh, a group work, which we were going to submit. So the lady uh, put everything together and you know, in a meeting, she gave it to us to go through. So when I was going through that, I was sort of um, editing you know, what she had written. And of course, I, I, my emphasis was on her grammar, her spellings and all that. And at some point I realized this ca- Canadian Jew was getting a bit you know, uncomfortable and I could sense what was going through her mind, thinking that how come the African guy who, you know, um, hasn't got English as his first language to be correcting my grammar or to uh, checking my spellings for me. 
So anytime I pointed to, um, you know, have some spelling error, he would, she would, you know, refer to the other guy, Mickey. I said, Mickey, what do you think about this? Sometimes Mickey would say, oh, yeah, 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 uh, Gabriel is right. Sometimes Mickey would, you know, think, uh, no. And then finally they'll check and know that I'm right. And I was saying to myself, look, do you know the number of times I've been whipped in my palm for spelling <laughs> things wrongly in Ghana? That was, <laughs> that, was the, that was the training. I may not speak like uh, maybe a British or American or uh, uh, somebody with uh, English of the first language. But when it comes to spelling, you know, you can't find me wanting because it was part of the deal. And uh, so, you know, at least I was sure of what I was doing. This lady, she was very pink. And, um, you know, so I realized that, no, uh, this wasn't going well. So uh, I avoided making such corrections and trying to point out to their mistakes and things like that. So, you know, if that's what you think is right, just submit it. It's not going to kill us. So coming to, you know, um, towards the end, in fact, Andy and myself were the first ones to complete our dissertation. So we've completed our studies before the others because we put a lot of effort, you know, in that summertime we stayed on campus. So we had more time to do, you know, our academic work and things like that. In fact, that was quite engaging, you know, for us. So um, we completed the studies. And in 1990, uh, I went back to Ghana and uh, for about two months. And in October, I came to the UK. In fact, uh, UK wasn't part of my plan. Uh, at the time I left um, Israel, I had two admissions, uh, one to the Institute of Social Studies in The Hague and also University of Amsterdam for a PhD. And so when I left Israel, the plan was uh, I was coming to you know the UK for a while and then continue on to either uh, The Hague for, you know, or the University of Amsterdam. Mm. There's, a, My, there's a lot I, of, um, sorry, Uncle, I was just going to ask, there's a lot of Ghanaians yeah. in, in the Netherlands, right? Yeah. Was that yeah. was that something that factored into your, your decision to apply there? No. To no, no, okay. no, no, no <laughs> not at all. You see, um, what Ghanaians do is that uh, sometimes you always you spread your, you know, you spread your, 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 your bread, you know, further so that, you know, if you're lucky, you catch something. So mm -hmm. it wasn't the determining factor. Actually, um, US was the place I wanted to go, mm. you know, uh, for my PhD. Uh, at the time I was living, uh, living, the, um, living in Israel, uh, I, I had a few admissions, uh, but no scholarship. So uh, we're still processing that uh, when I completed in studies. Mm -hmm. So actually, um, I would go, in fact, I tried some schools in Australia, um, in Norway, and you know, uh, other places. You only go where you think you can um, you know, get a school funded and get your education. So yeah, um, the Hague Institute of Social Studies, um, I was lucky one, somebody I think recommended that so I applied at the University of Amsterdam too. So I knew that I was going to be in the UK for, for a short while. And um, so when we came, I came in October and I think in January, the Gulf War started and uh, things were a bit you know, rugged and wasn't sure. Uh, I was still, um, you know, looking at the post, uh, different options and, you know, all that. So um, before 
um, the time was right for me to make the journey to the Netherlands. Um, you know, my, you know, uh, my wife became you know pregnant uh, with Didi. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So uh, somehow, maybe uh, I don't know. Didi was one of the reasons why you know we remain here. Mm-hmm. And so after that time, you know, I started having different views because I had my position at the at, at my university. And at the time, in fact, they didn't want me to pursue further studies. They wanted me to come back because they were not going to leave my position open. So I was confused whether to go back to Ghana or mm-hmm. to continue the studies. So when uh, my wife became pregnant with Didi, uh, somehow I decided that, okay, I couldn't be a student whilst, you know, I'm expecting um, a new baby. Yeah. I was mm-hmm. quite apart from the fact that I was scared. Uh, I didn't know how we we're going to, you know, manage that. Uh, no mother here, no uncle here, nobody, no family who is going to support us, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of uh, bringing up a baby and all that. So I had to find some work to do. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, yeah, that's, I think that's where you can go a bit deep into the story because um, <laughs> I can't imagine like, you know, you're in a, in a new country and, you know, you've got a, a kid on the way um, and just like what must be going through your head at the time and, you know, just just kind of as a guy as well. Like I think, particularly I think as 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 a man um, who grew up in in Ghana, very kind of like traditional upbringing. Um, I guess there's certain pressures that you put on yourself as far as like what it means to be a man, to be a provider, etc. So I can only imagine like how, um, yeah, kind of daunting that must have been. But you're in London. You're in South London, Peckham. Uh, in 1990, um, you know, things have changed a lot uh, since then. Peckham's a completely different place. But for you as a, as a um, newly arrived immigrant um, in Peckham, which I'm not sure at the time, I don't know if it was still like quite a, a big Nigerian population at the time, but um, how, how was it? Yeah, there was so like, yeah, just generally like, what, what was it like just socially at the time? Um. I mean, socially, uh, I think I sort of um, operated within the Ghanaian community, mm. uh, not within um, Pekam itself, but uh, I knew a good number of people all across London, in North London, especially Tottenham, where we have good Ghanaian population, mm-hmm. and also uh, in Stockwell, and I mean, back to Campbell as well, which I, I see Campbell, Peckham all to be the same area anyway. So some of my university mates, secondary school mates, and uh, other people that I got to know through um, some friends who had been here before, Uncle Kino especially. So uh, my social life was more within the Ghanaian community. Mm-hmm. And um, we had a lot of parties. We did really do a lot of parties. <laughs> um, you know, birthday parties, as you you, you remember, um, you know, attending all these, um, you know, parties and and all that. And also funerals. So these were, you know, the sort of um, social engagements that uh, we had uh, when you put uh, work aside. So weekends were more uh, about, you know, going to friend, going to this cousin. And at some point, uh, it just happened that um, I had a lot of my family here. My, my immediate backbone, um, you know, is um, in London. Uh, his backbone, who was in Norway, had moved to London. 
I, my sister uh, came to London and uh, moved to uh, Luton. And so we had uh, a whole lot of, um, you know, extended family. My wife's cousins were also around um, different places, Hammersmith, here and there. So um, even though it started almost like ground zero, at some point uh, we had, you know, family network that expanded. So weekends were kind of busy, quite enjoyable for us. Either they'll come to us or we go to them. Um, they didn't have much to do with the Nigerian population or other people from, you know, from Africa, West Africa or wherever. So um, we had enough of, you know, Ghanaian community to keep us, you know, keep us afloat. Mm-hmm. Um, later, through work, I managed to uh, get kind of acquainted with um, uh, Nigerian friends and my wife also had some Nigerian friends at work. So uh, it extended beyond the Ghanaian community um, to you know the Nigerian community and uh, attending Nigerian parties, which were great and you know all that. So yeah. Uh, <laughs> uncle, so, uncle gonna, sorry, I know you're going to ask. I know yeah, you're going to ask. No, no, too. uncle, I'm going to ask. Yeah. Um, you, no, no, you can... Patrick, you could probably tell the direction I'm going. So, I know exactly where you're going. <laughs> why is it, Uncle, that Ghanaians do wonderful funerals, like the, the funeral celebrations? Why are they so good, like in comparison to like? And can I can I just quickly um, like, can I quickly just jump in and say that this is why I feel like there's a there's a strong connection between um Bajan culture, culture from Barbados, and Ghanaian culture because this, when my grandma goes back home to Barbados. She, even if there's no funeral that she she knows of, she'll pack at least two or three outfits just in case that she has to go yeah. to a funeral. Like yeah. they take yeah. going to funerals so seriously out there as well. And there's lots of other sort of small sort of cultural clues in Barbados as well, which makes me think there's a, a close connection between Barbados and Ghana. But yeah, uncle, I would love to know. <laughs> you see, um, funerals um, in the Ghanaian contest, it's not like a family thing where people say, oh, you know, um, it's a family affair. It's a community affair. If it's, uh, you live in a village, it's a village affair. If you live in a town, it covers almost a, a bigger, you know, part of it. And it's a form, it's, it's something that you cannot, you know, uh, take away. It's in fact, um, it's ingrained in us. And um, because funerals are, communal affairs and also we feel that uh, funerals are expensive. So uh, people have to be supported. So it's almost like everyone will chip in a little bit, you know, to make yeah. it, uh, you know, make it a success and also give a befitting uh, farewell to the, the departed. And because um, it covers the whole, not even within the extended family, but also friends. Friends have a role. Everybody really has a role in funerals. And, you know, it's one of the, you know, the rites of passage, really. You know, I mean, maybe to the point that people say we glorify the dead than the living, or we, we are more interested in funerals maybe than anything else. And it's also um, the time that we really show love, really show appreciation. The condolences are not just by words, but also by action. And, um, a befitting farewell to you know the dead is shown by how many people you know attend the person's funeral. So if a funeral has a you know small attendance, it's um, almost like um, the person did not have connection. The, the person did not 
um, you know, lead an exemplary life, was not able to impact other people, and therefore nobody cared about the person's funeral. So that becomes, you know, part of uh, what, what we do. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, like you're saying, your grand, you know, um, packing a few, it's something that happens, you have to go, you don't need invitation, you know, to attend. And sometimes people find the smallest excuse to be able to go there. And for some people, it becomes almost like entertainment. Mm-hmm. So you don't have anywhere to go. There's a big funeral. Sometimes you go to observe how that is, especially if um, somebody from a wealthy family, you want to go and see how the, you know, the family is organizing the, 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 you know, the farewell. And also, you know, it's time to uh, meet other people, you know, have drinks. And often at funerals, people that you've, you, know, you haven't met for a long time or you haven't seen for a long time, you may see them there. So it has so many different, you know, meanings to people and uh, attractions to people. Mm-hmm. Aside the sadness and the, you know, the grief, uh, it's something that must be done. And in fact, if you fail to attend um, a friend or somebody's funeral, you may lose a person's friendship for the rest of your life. It's something that people take very seriously mm-hmm. and they would want to know. That is why when you attend funeral, you have to go around and greet everyone. Yeah, you have to go greet around. The t- yeah, 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 and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, and make sure, make sure they see that you are there. And also you do the donations and the donations, they have to give the name, the telephone number, they put it down because believe you me, after the funeral, they'll take, you know, the receipts and go through and see who paid what and who contributed <laughs> or who didn't contribute. So it, it, it's an obligation. Yeah. You know, it's an obligation and you don't have a choice. Um, you have to, you know, be there. So uh, I guess um, there have been a lot of, um, efforts now to reduce the cost, especially in Ghana, uh, of ten funerals. So now we don't do uh, all night wakeeping, which was part of uh, what we did, and also uh, we don't bury people quite quickly because uh, it will tell you that the person is not a chicken. It's chicken, you know, that dies and then you just throw it away. So you need to go to elaborate preparation, and especially because. Um, these days you have a lot of you know family members abroad and they have to be there and mm. um they have to get some time off and sometimes it's not easy so it's not unusual that you have um a body being in the morgue for five months six months seven months so that you know the people that matter that should attend the funeral have the chance to be able to you know come around um to be there so uh, it becomes very expensive um to um, you know, organize a funeral. And sometimes um, it's time also to um, do repairs in the house because you get a good number of people who are coming. So um, some repairs needs to be done, uh, painting needs to be done. So in that sense, you need a lot of time. So in the end, it becomes very expensive to organize a funeral. But for some people, it's also the time to uh, take back all the contributions that they've made because you attend everybody's funeral you pay something. So when you, um, you, you, you are bereaved, the expectation is that they'll come and do the same you know, for you. Mm-hmm. And some people are able to make a fortune out of that, especially if they participated, attended a lot of funerals, or they join associations. And if you join in a good number of associations, associations have uh, money that they have to pay when you are bereaved as part of their constitution. 
So uh, some people make a lot of money out of funerals, but mm. in the same way, some people can make a loss also, depending upon mm. um, you know uh, the connections and the attractions that a person, uh, the departed one has, and also maybe the family members themselves. But mm. yeah, mm. all you know, it's a social thing, it's a cultural thing, and it's an obligation, and uh, mm. it's something that you you can't you can't. I mean, uh, in Ghana, for instance. Uh, Almost like every Saturday, among Akans, Asantis are the ones who love, you know, funerals, and you know they have to do everything to perfection, mm. you know, mm. and mm. Uh, that's part of us. You can't, mm. you can't escape it. Mm. Yeah, I wanted to um, change the direction of the conversation a little bit, and just because, like, I feel with our generation, <laughs> there's something that we talk a lot about, particularly online, which is the diaspora wars, right? And this is where there's these certain topics of contention between African-Americans, the Caribbeans here, the Caribbeans in the Caribbean, the Africans here, and then Africans in, in Africa as well. And there's always these topics and debates and just, you know, just loads of, of, of like ill feelings, sometimes in like kind of jokey and jest and other times a bit more serious. So I was wondering for you, like, when you came to the country, obviously we have the Caribbeans that have been here since kind of Windrush. Uh, excuse me, the West Indians that have been here since Windrush. Um, you have other like kind of new immigrants that came in the 90s, others that came earlier for education and stuff like What was your relationships with, um, let's say, the, uh, the West Indians, for instance? Because, um, yeah, there's this kind of idea that uh, Africans and West Indians don't get along. Oh, there's this kind of like, you know, this this big cultural difference when in reality, a lot of times you realise that there's so many similarities. Um, and I think our generation were kind of the first ones to really break that mould where you have friends that are from everywhere um, in a lot of ways. So like, what was your relationship with, you know, other, other um, immigrant communities? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, um, the truth is... Um, Ghanaians, I, I mean, I hear I'll say Ghanaians because I don't know of um, the other um, African countries. Ghanaians really love West Indians, uh, especially before... I mean, the feeling is mutual, by the way, just, just putting it out there. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, when, when uh, we were growing up, and in fact, I mean, in the early 70s, when we were introduced to... Um, you know, reggae music. Mm. You know, Jamaica uh, was the well-known, you know, country um, in Ghana with all the reggae stars, you know, um, Peter mm. Tosh, Bob Marley, uh, Jimmy mm. Clave, and, you know, all that. So, in fact, somehow we, I think we even thought, you know, not where, you know, the Caribbeans was, but we thought that, you know, they're more advanced, you know, than you know, the home, the home, the home country. <laughs> and, you know, that, that love was there. And people who develop interest in the Rastafarian culture and all that, even trying to speak like, you know, West Indian, you know. So that is how, you know, uh, we, we, we saw it. Uh, when I came to the UK, um, I think I realized, or somehow uh, I was made to understand that the situation is not the same. There's some sort of um, rift mm. between West Indians and Africans. <clears throat> mm. I did not understand. 
But again, I, 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 later I got to find out that it's all part of our joint history. And for those who see um, the African complicity with you know, the slave trade or things like that. And again, I think that because um, history has not been well taught mm. in terms mm. of you know, Africans and their, um, um, maybe the part they played in you know in the trans uh, transcontinental um, you know slave trade. Mm. I mean that's I don't know if that that is true or if there's a mm. rift between West Indians and Africans. Mm. If that is the basis or that mm. is the reason, but that is what um, uh, I think some people thought that um, Africans betrayed them or Africans you know uh, sold um, you know our brothers and sisters um, to, mm. to the white person. Mm. Do you know what? Sounds... Pe- no, go on, go on, Uncle. For me personally, I I always um, like the history um, between um, West Africans, especially, and you know, and West Indians, because mm. I I feel that we have a common heritage. I feel that we come from a, a different source. Probably, I've had different experiences because of the that. Um, some find themselves, say, in the U.S., in the Caribbeans, and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but all in all, we are the same people. Um, I don't know if you meet a West Indian. Maybe the person may even come from your family. Yep. So I've always, <laughs> I've, I've, I've always believed, believed, believed in that. But in other ways too, I think, um, and I don't know if I'm right. I think um, West Africans that came to the U.K., for instance maybe our attitude was a bit different in terms of maybe our attitude to work. You see, for me, I always thought even the way we react or respond to racism may be very different Mm. because I always feel that, look, um, Ghana is where I come from. I'm Mm. here for a short stay. So Mm. I'm not really bothered about um, what others think about me. I'm here for a purpose. Once that purpose is achieved, I'm gone. Mm-hmm. So if you want to be racist towards me, it's up to you. I mean, I don't care because I don't have to be here. And also maybe uh, somehow I think Africans would, of my understanding, would do whatever it took. I mean, any job that maybe was there for them to do because, I mean, you have a good number of graduates who come here and be doing cleaning, doing, you know, factory mm. work, doing whatever it is that will give them money. Mm. And I remember I, I, I had uh, a few West Indian friends at work and, you know, always say, oh, don't do that. Don't, don't kill yourself for a white person, you know, mm. and things like that. But I did not say, no, I mean, I'm not killing my this job that I have to do. And, you know, I need to do that. So sometimes I, I don't know if we were stepping on their, you know, on their shoes or their, um, we were sort of uh, making them, we were not going along with them and trying to, a fight against a common enemy, you mm. know, a quote unquote or something, or that maybe the African will come and do the dirty job for the white person or something. Mm. But personally, I've always been in love with West Indians and I haven't mm. had any bad experience with um, any West Indian at work, outside of work and all that. But mm. I know there is that that tension. Yeah, I know there's that tension there, but the mm. real cause of it, I don't know, and I think mm. it shouldn't be there. In yeah. fact, it shouldn't be I, there. I agree, Uncle. Um, I was just gonna um 
maybe just shed a bit of light on like, the the kind of some of the reasons perhaps behind the the tensions that are there. And I think fundamentally it is um, a question of the generation um, and the length of time that West Indian people have been in the UK and how their outlook um, in terms of like the position that they found themselves in society, despite being here for for a relatively longer amount of time, how that has shaped their sort of um, their stance when it comes to um, their their fight against oppression and and also like how they see themselves identity wise. I think also as well a lot of the, the a lot of the time when you have kind of this kind of ignorance about. Um, West Africans from people of West Indian descent very often is people that have grown up or spent now a lot of time in the UK and their sort of perspective on West Africa and West African culture has been shaped a lot by Britishness. It's been shaped a lot by what they've been told after having spent a long time in the UK, because I know when I go back home, the way that West Indian people back home talk about West Africans is quite different to how West Indian people or, or people of West Indian descent here talk about West Africans. There's a, there's yeah. a, there's a slightly different kind of, um, I, I, yeah, just a slightly different tone. And I guess a slightly different level of, of reverence that people back home have for, for West Africans. And I know that like when my grandma or my, or my, or my granddad talk about Ghanaians or Nigerians, it's like, it's very different to the kind of conversations that I know that people in my age group, I don't know if you, um, if you had a similar experience Quaker, like growing up through school, but like a lot of the kind of banter that became, I guess, or crossed the line to becoming disrespectful. Those are not the views that my grandparents would have about Ghanaians. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, no, I get you 100%. Um, but yeah, I think when it, when it comes to like the, the, the point you raised, Uncle Daps, about um, a kind of uh, sort of fight back against sort of like the oppression and and, and, and not kind of just um, sort of turning the other cheek. Um, I think it has a lot to do with the sort of the, the original context and the, the reasons that West Africa, um, West Indians, sorry, came to the UK. Um, when, my grandparents were invited here and, and when, my, when my dad came over here, the thinking was very much that, you know, you are, although you're from abroad, although I'm, you know, I'm from Jamaica, I'm from Barbados, I'm still a British citizen. But when you arrived here, it was like the complete opposite. Like you were told like, you want, you've got nothing to do with us. Go back yeah. to where you came from. Yeah. Um, so I think, because of that, it's like there is this kind of um, resentment. And I know, obviously, you know, when um, West African people arrived here, it's not to say that they were given this sort of welcome again and say, oh, oh yeah, you're one of us. No, I know that it's, it wasn't like that at all. But I feel like that that um, myth of us all be belonging to the UK because we're part of the British Empire. I think by that stage, correct me if I'm wrong, Uncle, but by that stage, that myth had kind of been dispelled. And in a way, um, West African people, they knew that, okay, I'm going to go to the UK. I'm going to get my education, but I know that the UK is not really for me. I'm going to bounce. Um, and I think 
when my grandparents came here, they didn't think they were going to stay. But at the mm -hmm. same time, they didn't think that the UK was going to be as hostile towards them as it turned out to be. Yeah. And I yeah. think a lot, a, a lot of us have just sort of, that's something that has sort of um, been passed down generation to generation. And also, mm. you know, like when my, when my grandparents were, were about, you know, they, they would be educated or have the skills, but they wouldn't be encouraged to go to university or, mm. um, and especially like my mum will say like, she was actively discouraged from going to university. So it's like, there was this kind of, you know, like, what's the point? Like, you know, even if we do go to university or even if we do show a good aptitude, yeah, yeah. there's not re really any point. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's um, I think it's, you know, obviously I've talked a lot about this um, now, but there's, yeah, there, there, there are a lot of kind of small nuances and, and um, um, yeah, just little details and things that have influenced this kind of a complicated mm -hmm. relationship that we have. But, to echo what you said, uncle, I agree. It's like, we're all part of the same family and we really should be looking out for one another and not be kind of influenced by the kind of lies and the myths that we're, we're taught by yeah. white supremacy and, and by the UK. Um, but yeah, that was just my sort of, my little mm. two pence. Yeah, because I mean, when we had the, the, the year of return, you know, in Ghana, mm. which was a big success, mm. it was uh, really a good feeling um, seeing um, you know, Africans in diaspora, mm. in the US, the Caribbeans, you know, coming around. Mm. And in fact, Ghana is home for a good number of Caribbean people. Mm. Uh, some have been given citizenship. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the, the, the current government, and in fact, even the government before um, this one, have always had the keenness to, I mean, in fact, it started from Kwame Nkrumah, you know, yeah, the time yeah. of independence to yep. uh, teaming up with Marcus Garvey and you know, uh, W.U.B. Du Bois and you know, all mm. those people, yeah. uh, the Zion train and the Zion train is still rolling, you know, towards Africa. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And yeah. Um, it's something that we always felt that um, every um, black person everywhere, you know, mm. belongs to, you know, um, belongs to Africa. Mm. And most of them maybe, you know, West Africa. So for me, um, it's almost like seeing a piece of you. Mm. You know, it's almost like seeing a piece of you, uh, you know, somewhere. Mm. And I remember um, in 1982 or thereabouts when I first watched, you know, Roots. Mm. And I stayed on, uh, you know, six hours and watched, you know, the whole um, episodes. And uh, in between, you know, all that time, the, you know, the tears that, you know, we shared and all mm. that, um, mm getting some of these things in a very vivid way mm. uh, was almost like traumatizing in, yeah. in, 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 in many ways. So that has been, you know, part of the general um, sort of view. Mm. And I must say that, you know, the Caribbean has had a lot of influence mm. on West African life, mm. you know, believe it or not, mm. you know, in, in, in many ways, um, uh, just as, you know, the African-Americans have also had you know, some influence. Mm. So I think um, even the discussion that we're having here is only relevant for those of us who are here. If you speak to, uh, you know, an African guy, Ghanaian guy who's never stepped abroad and you mentioned Caribbean, you know, it's like, yes, that's my brother. Mm. And mm. That's, that, that's, that's the way it's seen. Yeah. And many ways, sometimes among ourselves, when we have discussion, I would say when uh, I bemoan, you know, um, Africa, 
for our followers. Mm. And I think that uh, maybe, again, we have not been good for Africans in diaspora in the sense that if Africa put, uh, got our acts together and we developed Africa the way it should have been, mm. utilizing the resources the mm. best way possible, it would have extended not only for you know Africans within the continent, but also uh, black people all over. Mm-hmm. And I think um, it could have created the attraction for West Indians, African Americans, uh, to make you know Africa their home, West Africa their home. For some mm-hmm. of them back there. I know some people would want to do that, but again, sometimes if uh, you are moving into an environment where you think. Uh, things are not right, things are not done, you know, in the right way. Mm. And even environment where you find that uh, a good percentage of people would want to get out if they had opportunity. So that attraction is not there. Mm. And that has always been part of our biggest, you know, problem, departing a bit from, you know, the uh, Caribbean um, African dichotomy. Mm. And looking at it for the children that we had here. Part of our struggle was to diffuse and also to dispel and to uh, realign them to the situation, give them a better perspective about mm. Africa mm. than mm. what we believe that they were having here. Yeah, Because we always believe that, you know, I think um, they are being educated in a way that is wrong. Mm. And they're also uh, being made to believe that Africa is not a place, West Africa is not a place that it could be. It's part of the problems, in part of the, it's part of the difficulties, in part of everything else. Um, the truth is that I always believe that um, Africa presents a better alternative to life, you know, in, mm. in the West. Mm. And if we only did little things right, mm. we would have had, you know, um, the biggest exodus of, you know, black people from in the West and elsewhere to come to Africa to mm-hmm. help build Africa, just like people from elsewhere went to America and built, you know, and built America. Mm-hmm. And we haven't been able to take advantage of that. Mm-hmm. And also I always look at it from the angle that in Israel, um, you find out that, you know, the institutes that I, I attended, you go to one of the basements and they have almost like a whole war and they have, you know, friends of Israel Mm. The English, they're based all over the world and they use them. Mm, mm. They use them, they use their brains and they are loyal to Israel. Mm. An American Jew who never stepped in Israel thinks about Israel as a homeland mm, mm. and would send a lot of money or maybe leave uh, money um, for, for, for the development of Israel, will help them, even give them secrets. I mean, I believe the reason the Mossad is a successful you know, um, intelligence um, organization is because almost they speak every language, mm-hmm. you know, in Israel. Mm-hmm. So, and they have all the people around, wherever, in mm-hmm. government and all that. So they are able to mm-hmm. utilize them. And Africa, if we had similar opportunity, mm-hmm. how great, you know, that would be mm-hmm. having, you know, um, um, black people in the Caribbean, you know, mm-hmm. everywhere and, you mm-hmm. know, all coming home with the experiences and all that to, um, you know, to develop the continent, that would mm. be great. Mm. But the incentives, the attraction, you know, has not been there. And that is where Africa has failed, you know, our brothers, you know, are in, in, in diaspora. And I think um, it's something that we should be able to do better. 
Yeah. And even not only uh, those in diaspora, but our own children, mm-hmm. our own children do not see it in you know, the way that maybe uh, thinking like making Africa a home. Mm. Just a few of them, and recently that have started tricking down to, you know, maybe say Ghana and elsewhere to settle. Yeah. Even though the opportunities are there. Why is it that when you have white people come to Africa to do business and they never want to come back? Because mm-hmm. they see that the place is green, the opportunities are there, they utilize that, they take mm-hmm. advantage of that. Mm-hmm. But our black fold do not seem to, you know, see that opportunity. Yeah. And our own children do not see the opportunity and say, look, let's get whatever we can get in the West. Yeah, yeah. And then come let's back. make it, yes, and go back home and make yeah. a better living there. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a difficult one, I think, because um you know, uh, the the Caribbean um, countries in in Africa, West Africa, West Africa as well, specifically, we've not been in. Our countries have been independent. Basically, my my dad is older than my his country's independent. Do you see what I mean? We're all of our different countries, all of our political entities are still very young, and I think also there is this thing of having to kind of get rid of these shackles of post-colonialism um yeah. that is it's it's something that definitely holds back um our countries in in the diaspora and, and on the continent as well and you know it's 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 not an easy thing and obviously i'm not saying you know that none of it is like n- that we can't take accountability for um i guess the, sh- the shortcomings that we have in the diaspora but it is a, it is a difficult one, I think, because the way that the world is set up is, at least from my perspective, it is um, very much anti any kind of Pan African pro- progress because the way I, I, the the legacy of the economic system that we um, we we currently live on um, is built on the exact opposite of any kind of progressive Pan Africanism. It was literally built on the backs of our um, our enslavement, um, our disenfranchisement. Um, so, I think it's, it's 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 something that will will have to change the the culture of the, the the societies that we live in, not just in the diaspora, but also in the West as well. Um, and it's it's no easy feat, but you know, I think, like you said, Uncle, the the one thing that we do need to remember is that we are, you know, brothers and sisters in the diaspora, and that we are not you know, each other's enemy as much as, um, exactly. as, as, as we're, as we're sort of fed that kind of that myth that we're supposed to kind of view each other as inferior or not quite as good as us, all those kind of silly myths that get fed to us. Um, that's something that I think um, our generation and the generation beyond really needs to work towards. And mm-hmm. yeah, because, you know, the Pan-African movement started, you know, in the fifties and sixties, or I guess even before that, um early 20th century late 19th century and it's it's like we we get to a point and then we kind of forget about it again and then we have to kind of go back a few steps mm-hmm. um but i think it's important that we you know continue to like just build on the legacy that was left behind by our by our forefathers and and, and whatnot so yeah and that, and that is where we need leadership mm-hmm. i mean we need people with vision you know the, the visionary leaders of the early um post-independent africa you know, um, had that vision, but those who came after them sort of have lost 
you know, the course. Mm. Uh, they haven't um, tried to champion, you know, that part of it. Yeah. And we almost have become uh, like competitors rather than try to um, come together and do things together. Mm. So, I mean, when you, you look at the Nkumes and the, um, you know, the Kenyatas and the Kawundes in the Rere of mm. Tanzania and, you know, um, uh, Sekuturi of Guinea and Mobido Keita and, you know, many others, mm. they had that as something they really wanted to achieve yeah. with, you know, their um, sort of um, friends in the West Indies and in the U.S., I'm mm. um, thinking that, you know, this is something that we really have to do. Mm-hmm. But we are almost like insular now in our thinking and, yeah. um, you know, in our beliefs and uh, our focus. Mm. And we're not making any effort sort of to, to do that. And we need to really bridge, you know, the, the gulf between the continent and the brothers and sisters, uh, you know, at the other side, um, you know, of, of mm. the pond. But mm. maybe um, some time to come, it may become um, a focus in the political for political discussion, and also people thinking about it, you know, in that mm. sense of it, and say that okay, um, what is it that we can do? Even trade between um, yeah. Africa and the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. It's something that, you know, we, we need to be looking at and we, it needs to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, but we sort of um, ignore or neglect some of these things and the things mm-hmm. that bring us together, the, 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 the common identity, the common heritage and all that, uh, we've mm-hmm. lost it. Mm-hmm. And, as well, we need to make a journey to discovery and recovery. And we need mm-hmm. to, you know, be able to discover that and make it part of um, the, our thinking. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I suppose... It's up to you guys. Um, you are taking the, <laughs> taking the mat- baton. Nope. And- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. In, in relation to that, actually, just the idea of us picking up the baton, when you, you know, you've had time to observe our generation, see us grow up, um, it'd be interesting to hear what are some of the things that you've noticed about um, our generation and how we deal with things, how we approach different issues, Um what are maybe some of the things that you admire about our generation? Maybe some of the things that you think we're kind of lacking or could be improving in? Yeah, I mean, my biggest fear um, was more to do with the deculturalization of our offspring, you know, here. Um, we feel strongly that um, our children sort of do not um, share our cultural values, or probably even don't understand, you know, our culture and our cultural, you know, our values and things like that. Uh, we believe that our children are more westernized and almost because of the fact that um, the miseducation or ill-education or whatever um, was, um, you know, inculcated in them growing up, maybe from primary schools and things like that, made to think of maybe Africa in a very bad light. So uh, for some people, uh, everything African is wrong or not even good to the point that maybe some children don't even want to identify themselves, you know, uh, with that. And I remember, um, like for instance, my children, when they ask where, where they are from, I always expect that 
they will first of all say they are Ghanaians before they say that, you know, they are British. Or if they are saying British, they must bring in the, you know, the Ghanaian thing. And also when they say, oh, my parents uh, are originally from, um, from Africa, <laughs> it's almost like you are not from Africa. Mm. Or not, it's in, it's an interesting one, but I think there's, there's, there's two sides to it. I think, um, I mean, at least from my perspective, whenever, when, as we were growing up, that was our natural tendency was to say, oh, I'm Ghanaian or I'm from Ghana or whatever the case is, particularly when we were younger. And I think particularly when you grow up in kind of inner city, very diverse areas, that's natural, like in, in, in school, you know, people are aware that you're Ghanaian. But I think as I got older, um, particularly given that the first time, other than when, you know, I was a baby and stuff, like first time going to Ghana, I was 15. So there was this huge gap um, of my formative years that I spent with no real connection with Ghana other than the Ghanaian community in London, Um, which means, okay, cool. I enjoy the food, you know, I know the music, I know this, like there's so many things about the culture that I've obviously been exposed to um, and that I appreciate, but then there's other elements that I'm quite detached from. Um, You know, this is one that comes up a lot, but obviously the language, um, not speaking tree, not really understanding to a good extent. That's such a... But you, but you know what I mean, because that's such a that's such an influential element of the culture. If you can't communicate, is 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 very hard. So um, I think it's only really as I got older that I started maybe even more so, and after acknowledging the differences, um, started kind of accepting to some extent. Okay, I'm Ghanaian, but I'm not really Ghanaian. Um, I know for a fact I'm not like. I'm not from England, maybe to some extent I'm British by citizenship. Um, there are a lot of things within, if I was to speak more just culturally and you know how I identify culturally, there I can much more easily fit in the mold of I'm a black Londoner than I can do I'm a Ghanaian or that I'm British. Because for instance, as far as my upbringing, there's probably a lot more similarities between me and Patrick than there is between me and, you know, one of my cousins that grew up in Ghana. Do you know what I mean? So there's, there's, we've kind of like crafted our own kind of identity in a way that is more naturally, um, that I'm more naturally kind of, I can uh, identify as, um, as, you know, as sad or as whatever that, as that may be. Um, it's, it's, I think it's the reality of it. And, you know, I think as we get older, we make more of an effort to try to reconnect. And I think when we, you know, as you become an adult or so, you start thinking a bit more ahead, um, mm. thinking about our children, how we're going to raise them, mm. um, even down to like our choices of, of, of um, partners, because, you know, as you know, my, my wife is Somali. Um, they're interesting that they are really 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 strong in like their culture like if you find a Somali parent they're speaking to their children in Somali you're 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 hardly going to find at least from my exposure to Somalis like you're not going to find a Somali a young Somali person who doesn't um, understand or speak the language Hmm. Um, and they tend to uh, congregate in certain areas um, 
and create their own communities, which is a lot mm. stronger than I think some other immigrant communities have done. And mm. they marry between themselves, etc. So like there's there's I question, okay, cool, you know, how am I gonna raise my children? How are they going to understand Ghanaian culture? Um you know, there's so many things that we have to that that kind of like forces mm. us to re um, visit and, and think about how we're going to really try mm. to make sure that that culture doesn't get lost completely. Mm. Um, so it's tricky. Part of it, as I said, with with saying, oh, okay, I'm British Ghanaian or I'm whatever, part of it is um, due to like embracing the reality that we're, we are not really evil at all. Mm. Um, and I mean, maybe to some people is maybe some form of self-hate, but at least from like <laughs> people that I know is more so yeah like just acknowledging that we, we don't really sit fit perfectly into evil category. yeah i was just gonna say i think it's just a natural thing for especially when it comes down to like geography it's a natural thing for cultures to to shift and kind of i guess blend um de- like depending on your environment and things like that um and you know i i, I obviously understand there is the fear that um aspects of culture are lost um but i think it's just naturally human nature that that cultures do shift but I think what's arguably more important is just ensuring that okay maybe you know your culture changes a little bit um um you may do things slightly differently or eat things slightly differently you might have jollof and curry goat instead of just (laughs) just, just, what I mean But, but I think um more important at least for me is just ensuring that the values that you have um don't change per Mm. se so you know your culture could look different um but you may find that in um the culture of your partner who may not be from the same um country may not have the same um descent as you um you find common ground in in the in the values that you share um because i think it's just it's just a natural thing growing up in a city like london um it's very especially nowadays as well it's very difficult to kind of not be influenced by um the other cultures that that exist here with us um and i think that's a i think that's a good thing i think that's it is it's good that us as londoners have especially black londoners that we have something that we can call our our own because when when our parents got here our grandparents got here and even growing up here you very often are made to feel like you don't belong here so for us to carve out something and create something for ourselves i think is very very important for our own self-worth and self-identity and, mm. and for our mental health as well um mm-hmm. but uncle daps i definitely hear what you're saying like it is so important that we don't forget um you know where we come from and and we don't forget um aspects of our culture and and you know we cling to the the good values that um that um our our um ancestors and um the people that have come before us um um adhere to as well um so yes, uh, it, that's that's basically it for me. I think it's just important. Yeah, to yeah. I mean, one of the one one of the issues. Uh, um, a few years back, I interviewed, um, you know, a Ghanaian guy, British guy, um, uh, at work, and you know, later I was asking him, you know, I I mean, his, uh, both parents are Ghanaians, so I asked him, you know, where in Ghana um, they are from, and he said that um, they're from Accra, Accra area. Mm. And I asked, you know, Accra area where? 
And the guy said, uh, in fact, all you know, he knew was that um, the parents were from Accra. Could not say much about anything else. Mm. And I, I found that to be very disturbing, mm. you know, <laughs> in, 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 in a sense that, I mean, that's the minimum, you know, um, mm. you, you, you would know. And the thing is, now I know uh, we take the flag for when Kay was talking about the language, um, it's one of um, the things that really, really, really make me feel so bad. And I, I don't know, I remember uh, when uh, we went to Ghana some time ago with all the case and a friend of, a friend of ours came and then realized that, uh, you know, the, the case um, do not speak Cree. And he said, why? And then I said, oh, they are useless because we, we spoke Cree at home and the rest of it, but you know, I don't know why they can't speak it. And then he said that, no, 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 they are not useless. You are useless. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, yeah, and somehow, you know, yeah, I, I, I accepted that, even though, you know, uh, we spoke Cree throughout. My wife and I, you know, we do not speak any other language other than, you know, Cree at home. Mm. But somehow, maybe we do not do it in a way that the kids would. Do you know, especially, especially K. K was the lost one. No, no, no. <laughs> I'll explain why. Because you guys didn't speak it to us. There's a difference between speaking it to each other, particularly in a context of an African home, because we're not having conversations with each other. We're not having normal chats and when you guys are speaking to each other, it's a conversation between man and uh, husband and wife, and we're just there. So to expect us to just like through osmosis, take it in and understand when we're not, you know, like culturally we're taught not to really engage in that way with the older generation is more, you know, is, is separate. Like we have our relationship and then there's a, a, a parent child relationship and it's not very, is not very um i don't know the even word it's not it's not very like there's not a lot of rapport in a, in a real sense like as as um as there would be between your siblings or your cousins whatever the case is so and with me i think the reason why i probably struggled more with it than uh, maybe Didi or my mutual just me being naturally quite reserved anyway I wasn't a, a massive, you know, I didn't talk a lot. I kind of kept myself to myself a lot of time. So even more reason why it's going to be harder for me to, and I think it's only now that I've been learning how people actually learn languages because I've been kind of reading around it and learning that kind of thing because it is something that I want to rectify for myself. I've realised that, yeah, there's, it makes complete sense why we don't speak it because of the way, you know, it was, it was, um, yeah, just the context of the household. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you're right. Uh, I wouldn't go into that debate because uh, I can't debate a subject where, uh, from the outset, I see myself as guilty. So I'm, I'm guilty. So I, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not going to debate. But um, if you find yourself in an environment where um, you hear some language around you always, somehow naturally. You know, you'll get, you'll get, you'll get some. Even if you're not going to be fluent in it, you would sort of uh, pick something. Really, you pick something. Mm -hmm. You know, from yeah, that of because it's, it's a language that you hear all the time. I remember one of your podcasts. I was, uh, I was listening to a few days ago, and 
uh, <laughs> one, one of you guys was talking about language and was saying that, well, you want to learn language, then you don't have to be learning um, vocabulary. You have to be learning phrases. Yeah, Patrick's a linguist. So like, yeah, that, yeah, that was me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I found that to be very true that, mm-hmm. yes, don't learn because he, he was saying that don't get a vocabulary because you can get a vocabulary, but you can't know how to link. Mm-hmm. you know the vocabulary but you have to know phrases which then you are able to make say something that is understood mm-hmm. rather than just you know correct of course you need the vocabulary to be able to engage in complex um discussions and things like that so in a way yeah um it's um another another subject but it's, it's unfortunate but what i think is that irrespective it's still not too late and okay you made an effort you even paid um years back 500 pounds or something um, you know, to get on the track to learn, uh, but somehow I don't know uh, what happened. <laughs> and uh, life happened, you know. I, I I still think that you you're flirting with the idea, you know, someone who can speak and tr- trying to you know sort of um, get people to be able to uh, learn uh, the tree language. So mm. I think you'll be uh, the first student of your own uh, whatever you're trying to set up. Mm. So that in a way, yeah, also yeah. you know, I speak it too. Yeah. So yeah, it's unfortunate, but the fear more um, that I have is that if we are not careful, you know, if I see ourselves as the first generation and you were second generation, by the time we read maybe third generation, fourth generation, or even before fourth generation, uh, most of the tracks, most of the, you know, phrase would have been gone. Mm-hmm. And your, your, your case may know very little mm-hmm. about, you know, about your roots and, you know, all that. Mm-hmm. And that is something that maybe we could be blamed for certain things, certain feelings, but you could also be blamed by your offspring for certain things. Mm-hmm. And I know mm-hmm. that we, we won't be there to defend ourselves. You're going to shit. <laughs> you know, oh, it's your grand, grand, grandpa. <laughs> One, a thousand but, percent. Of course I'm going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so, now, now that you've identified something that we failed to do and mm-hmm. there's all time, yeah, just yeah. Two time. So maybe yeah. you make the effort and Definitely, at least yeah. try and do it for as long as you continue to eat jollof rice and you know yams and you know planting and all that. Don't just enjoy, you know, the food which is part of the culture, but enjoy the language is also part of the culture. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I mean, the way I see it is like uh, people learn French, they learn Spanish, they learn Italian deep in like you know in the, into their adult life. So there's no reason why the same can't be done for native African languages. Mm, So yeah, mm, it's it's definitely on the cards for me. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Well, I mean, I think we're nearly coming up to, you know, two hours or so of of this conversation. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And I know we could keep going if we wanted to, but I think to, for our listeners sake, we'll kind of begin to wrap up um, Mm. now. Um, Dad, I don't know if you have any final words or anything you kind of want to impart before we, before we wrap up? Yeah, uh, I think uh, Patrick was asking, I mean, uh, you were asking uh, what maybe uh, we've been proud of. Uh, was it Patrick or you? Uh, one of you was yeah. asking. Okay, yeah. And I, I think that uh, somehow we think the uh, younger generation, you know, is making a success of life more than maybe some of us. Uh, even though um, my generation, a good number of us came here highly educated, but because of different reasons, probably took so long for some of us to regularize our stay. And also, uh, we also had this feeling that, as you know, I mentioned, it was never my plan to 
um, live in the UK beyond five years. Mm-hmm. I remember that um, anytime I went to a party with Uncle Kino and we, we, we met Ghanaians and we'd be chatting, oh, how long have you been here? And there was a time some guy was saying that he's been here for, I think, 10 years. And Uncle Okino looked at me and I'm uh, thinking, later when we were on our own, we said, is he crazy? <laughs> 10 years. <laughs> Meanwhile. <laughs> you know, yeah, t- 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 10 years, yeah. Because we came with all the hope that, okay, have studies, do this, do that, go back home and settle felt everything was there waiting for us. Mm. And because, um, first of all, we did not uh, make up our minds from the outset that we're going to stay and therefore um, just do everything that will make us settle properly in our, in, 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 into the society. Uh, some of us just ran around the fringes and um, with whatever education we had, it almost, um, we we're not able to take advantage of that. Some did jobs that otherwise they shouldn't have been doing or could have changed, but never found it um, easy to switch you know, from that. But at least um, somehow uh, some of us wanted to see what we wanted to see of ourselves in our children, mm. because we felt that we made the sacrifice um, for our children and that is why we always feel that our children should be able to, you know, do well for themselves. Mm. Often we do it as if they are going to do well for us, but you're not going to do well for us. It's only what we have in it is our pride. Mm. You know, mm. it's, it's the pride. And I think Patrick or somebody was asking when uh, Kay got admission to Cambridge, how mm. I felt. I mean, Kay knows what it is. It was almost like, you know, his admission letter was at my office. It was on my table. You know, <laughs> everything, you know, it's all displayed and all that. And anybody who cared to give me uh, a moment to talk, <laughs> who hear, hear me talking about that, it was almost like, um, I remember calling my wife at work, you know, she was at work and I, uh, when we were leaving home that morning, we knew uh, he was waiting for the results. So uh, I think Didi called me first and said, oh, Key got in. That's how he mm. put it. Mm-hmm. And I knew he was talking about Cambridge. So immediately I called my wife and I, 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 you know, she took the phone and she knew I was gonna tell her about the results because she was also out there, you know, waiting for, to hear something. And I said, oh, okay, got admitted to Cambridge. She did not talk to me again. All that I heard was screaming, shouting, and then later I could hear from the background, oh, Veronica, stop crying. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Uh, and I just, you know, I couldn't wait. I wanted the day to finish so I could come home uh, and, and, and see my Cambridge boy. Uh, so, you know, I, the, it, I think it, I was the last person to actually know. <laughs> uh, really? <laughs> yeah, because I remember I was in I was in my economics lesson, and yeah. um, I got a, a. Do you know? Uh, funny enough, that it was actually Andrew that told me. He mm-hmm. he he. Andrew called me and he was like, "Oh, um, looks like you're going Cambridge." Well, I think he texted me one of the two. And oh, I'm okay. Like, and I'm like, "What are you talking about?" And then, uh, then I think I spoke to Didi after that. And then mm. I think I spoke to you after that. And then, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow, that's, that's yeah. So uh, somehow we always feel that, you know, uh, in spite of whatever difficulties, and I've listened to a lot of your podcasts, you've talked about racism and mm. uh, how it feels to be, um, you know, a black person in, in, in the UK and elsewhere and all that. 
But what I think I can say is that that shouldn't define, you know, you guys and it shouldn't define your offspring. Mm -hmm. The difficulties are there. I think somehow we often made our children to know that they have to work, you know, twice as hard as their white counterparts. And it's the truth, mm -hmm. you know. Maybe over the, uh, sometimes you can things me relax much better than, you know, it is now. Obviously, it is better now than it was maybe when we first came. And I, I can point to a few of the problems that I had uh, being set up for an interview at Edgebury. And um, I was told on the Friday and I went, it was uh, for Monday and I traveled Monday, went there looking my best. And when I got there at the reception, I, I told the lady um, that, that oh, I was coming for an interview, blah, blah, blah. The in in interview was for 10 o'clock in the morning. And uh, she told me to wait and uh, uh, she was coming. She went inside and then came back. And then a gentleman followed. Uh, the gentleman came and said, oh, we, we, the interview took place on Friday. Hmm. And I said, uh, you know, this interview was given to me at the job center. They gave me the card. The lady spoke, I was there when the lady spoke with your office and appointment was made and mm -hmm. all that. So how come, you know, the interview was held on the Friday? Mm -hmm. And I stood there for a while and I just, you know, um, left the place, you know, came back. I didn't swear. I didn't, you know, I just, mm -hmm. I just, I just left. Maybe if it's now my reaction again would have been a bit different. Mm -hmm. um, that time I was still very much Ghanaian, you know, took me in school <laughs> and also, you know, saw myself as a gentleman, which I, mm. who, uh, you know, which I am. So mm -hmm. I left there and uh, I can make reference to some of these things. These things are bound to happen, mm. but you need to also inculcate in the children that you have, you know, to have those values, not to take anything for granted mm. and to work, you know, much harder than you have done and to, uh, aspire to achieve more than you have. But mm. we are proud of you guys, uh, you know, for, what you've been able to do and you know all that even if it's here and you don't manage to uh, go back home you know home <laughs> home then at least uh you'll be the ambassadors of you know us and then you live uh, the life as it should be mm. and that um you'll be able to change the narrative mm. you know the mm. narrative of black people and the sort of um how people associate us with whatever it is that you mm. want to associate us with that you know should not be there and um wherever you find yourself, you may, you should not be seen as the odd one, as the, or the, the good black person. Mm -hmm. You might be seen that all, all, all black people, you know, are good people. Mm -hmm. And it's not because, you know, I, I'm different because I'm not different. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes society uh, makes a take up or pick up some fight that otherwise you wouldn't, you know, uh, have picked up, but mm, yeah. uh, that's the situation. And um, I should thank you very much for giving me this opportunity. Oh, no. I've, 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 I've enjoyed, you know, the chat and I hope we can find some other uh, stuff to talk about sometime at your convenience. I'm always available. <laughs> I, I don't work. I don't do anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so thank you very much. Uncle Dats, thank you so much, man. Um, Yes, it's been really good just chatting, and I don't know. Maybe one day I'll come and find you in Kumasi. We can oh, sit yeah. down, have a drink, and we can continue this chat. But um, yeah, it's been it's been a real honor and pleasure to to have you on, and 
and to hear your stories and share some of your wisdom. So thank you so much, man. It's thank you. Thank really you. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Okay, cool. Right. Perfect. Oh, thanks so much. Um, just to wrap up then, uh, thank you listeners. Um, as you can tell, it's been a very, very deep conversation, covered a lot of ground. Um, if you want to, you know, continue the conversation after, you can always email, email us at otbpodcastuk at gmail.com. Love to hear your thoughts on some of the things we touched on. Of course, you can always uh, reach us on um, social media, so Twitter and Instagram, both at OTB Podcast UK, and we'd love to hear from you. Um, and with that, that's all over and out.